0: pushing to the edges. And to, you know, give a smaller scale example, like it doesn't have to be epic. This is something that I've really been trying to, to um, tell people is it doesn't, you don't have to go like <laughs> run a hundred miles or like summon a mountain. You can be epic in your spin class, you know, like, and get that suffering. It, it can be a micro adventure. It can be just little things you do on a day to day basis. That was Dr. Stephanie Howe-Violet,
1: and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 82. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. As you might have noticed, this show isn't released every week like most other podcasts. Instead, full eight-episode seasons go live on the first of the month every other month, and in each season you'll get to meet a wide range of interesting and refreshingly imperfect people who join me for one reason only—to share the truth of what's really going on in their lives and to talk about things that we think don't get talked about openly and honestly enough. That means deep conversations about work-life balance— body image, shame, fear, relationships of all types, sex, social media, religion, mental health, racism, parenting, self-improvement, goal setting, and more. And of course, since this is an adult podcast that covers adult topics, you can expect to hear adult language from time to time. So consider this your little warning on that. Let's see, what else do I want to tell you about this show? Basically, I just want you to know that no one's trying to sell you anything. No one's forcing their agenda down your throat. No one is trying to get you to fix yourself. No one's preaching a so called perfect six step life hack plan for anything. Which, thank goodness, right? Because I'm so over that type of stuff. Instead, my hope is that each episode of this show makes you laugh, think, and just feel less alone. Because honestly, that's all that I ever want to know that I'm not alone. Which is why this podcast is more than a podcast, it's a community. And you won't hear any ads or any sponsors or any other kind of outside influence. The show is actually hundred percent listener funded and each new episode is made possible by people just like you who have pledged $8 per eight episode season to do this. We use a platform called Patreon and not only does your support cover the costs of producing the show and ensure that it can keep going throughout the year, but it also earns you access to over 30 hours of exclusive bonus content and a super fun community. You'll get extra episodes with favorite past guests, people like Kate Grace, Kathleen Shannon, Alexandra Franzen, and Carrot Quinn, just to name a few, with new bonus episodes added every month. You'll also get end of month reflection episodes directly from me, where I go into detail about my successes, failures, goals, and lessons learned each and every month. You'll get my popular weekly email series, Notes of Grit and Grace, in your inbox each Friday if you want that. You'll be able to join our fun, casual monthly book club if that's your thing, and you'll just have lots of cool opportunities to help shape the future of the show. So for all of that, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per season. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support is what will enable the show to continue, and if you're in the position to be able to help fund the show, I can't tell you how much that would mean to me. Plus, it's going to be so much fun for us to be able to get to know each other behind the scenes in our community. And now, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Dr. Stephanie Howe-Violet. Stephanie is a professional ultra runner with a PhD in nutrition and exercise physiology. Her long and impressive running resume includes a 2014 win at Western States 100, the world's oldest and probably most prestigious 100-mile trail race. In addition to her own pursuits as an athlete, Stephanie works as a coach and sports nutritionist, using her passion for nourishing the body through both physical movement and real food. She believes that eating and physical activity should be a beautiful, enjoyable part of every day, and the combination of her personal experience as an elite runner alongside her scientific expertise in exercise physiology and nutrition allows her to approach coaching from a unique perspective. In this episode, Stephanie tells us what it's like to run 100 miles and goes into such awesome detail about her evolution as a runner, what it's like to race such long distances, what she eats during training and racing, and so much more. We talk about the value of doing hard things, the benefits of intentional suffering, and what happens when your identity gets too wrapped up in one thing, like running, and then that thing is suddenly taken away. This is such a wonderfully honest conversation, and I love everything Stephanie had to share about running, mental toughness, body image, nutrition, all of it was so good, and I hope that you love it too. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are good to go. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. This is such a treat to get to record in person. I know. (laughs) One every like 30 episodes I get to record in person. So this is lovely to have you here in my little home office situation. Just catching up over coffee. Catching up over coffee. Coffee for you, tea for me. What kind of coffee are you drinking?
0: Um, I have back porch um, Ethiopia Um, beans. Just black. Are you an everyday coffee person? I am.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I... I love the smell of coffee. I like the ritual idea of coffee, but I hate the taste of it. So oh, I have never been a coffee drinker. Yeah. So tea has to substitute, but I am drinking peppermint tea, which mm-hmm. is yummy. That sounds good too. Yeah. I never, it's funny. I never really have caffeine. Mm-hmm. And so when I do have it, it really, I remember I went on my backpacking trip that I went on last summer. I brought the caffeinated, um, what the electrolyte, the, Oh um, yeah. The gels or, or the tablets, like the drink that, why am I blanking at the noon tablets Noon oh, tablets
0: mm-hmm. and, um,
1: Yeah. You're bouncing off
0: the walls. (laughs) Oh my God.
1: Caffeine actually works. (laughs) Um, So tell me one of
0: your guilty pleasures lately. What are my guilty pleasures? Um, Well, I've been really into making ice cream Mm. (laughs) and um, I will say we have about six different kinds of ice cream in my freezer. And um, I definitely have been having ice cream every day. So it feels a little bit like a guilty pleasure that's a nice winter activity (laughs) yeah I, i don't know it's kind of cold out for ice cream but um it
1: works I should lend you... It's funny. I don't have it right now because our friend Zoe has it, but I have this incredible ice cream cookbook.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, cookbook. I mean, I guess that's, you're not cooking ice cream. That's funny you mentioned Zoe because she was my ice cream making pal this last time. See? There you go. <laughs> um, she,
1: I'll get her to pass the book. It's Van Leeuwen, I think. It's this it's ice cream shop that I went to when the last time I was in New York. And they have you know regular ice cream and they have vegan ice cream also. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their cookbook is both. Oh, yeah. But it's the best vegan. I mean, it's like insanely
0: good. Like cashews and coconut milk and all, but they have other like recipes to too. Yeah. Um, Zoe and I just made a Lucky Charms ice cream for St. Patrick's day. Oh my God. So. So, so
1: what with Lucky Charms mixed in? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was perfection. Uh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell, what else am I curious about? Random real life things right now. Um, what is a
0: habit that you are either trying to break or build this year? habit I'm trying to break is to be more of a morning person. And I actually am a very good morning person in terms of getting up and working. Like I love to wake up early and just like sit at my computer, drink some coffee, answer emails, but I don't like to talk to people. So first thing in the morning, I can be kind of cranky. And my, my cousin um, coined the term hatching. So, I'm hatching right? It's not like I'm just a grumpy morning person. I just need my time to like you know let the sun come up, let myself have a few cups of coffee. But I realize that can come across kind of um <laughs> kind of rude to some people, so I'm really trying to be more um talkative and smiley and you know that that's, kind of stuff in the morning. That's funny there's do you know the artist
1: illustrator Emily McDowell? no oh my god i should show you she i mean I, I love her stuff so much and she i got a friend of mine a gift from her kind of like online shop it's this mug and it's this beautiful kind of like cursive handwriting and it says it's too early for you to say things
0: <laughs> yes
1: that that is me <laughs> <laughs> that's funny um I, speaking of letting the sun come up in the morning, I mean, we're talking now at the time of this recording, like right after the time change. it was yes. so nice and light in the morning. And now all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, it's so dark. Again. I know, but
0: I'll take it because I really, you know, I finish my day usually at five or 6 PM and it's really nice to have it be light out. Um, so I'm really thrilled about that shift. Yeah. That's true. No, I agree. Uh,
1: Paul and I like to go on, he finishes, uh, work around five also. And we mm-hmm. like to go on little walks after yeah. work. and it's nice to not have to do it with a headlamp. Totally. Yep. So as we get started, what's something that you would love for people to know about you? What's like fun random Stephanie fact?
0: Um, Random Stephanie fact. Okay, so in high school, everyone always thinks this is really funny, but I, I wasn't always a runner. Um, I actually hated running growing up. I was good at it, but it just really wasn't something I was into. And so my sport, like I was really into sports, but my sport was softball. Like I was, I wanted to go to college and play college softball and like, it was my thing. And when I tell people that they look at me and they're like, what? Cause it's so far from like who I am now, but it was like, I played it all year round. I took private pitching lessons. Um, I was a pitcher and it, I don't know, people just don't really see me as a softball player. So it's kind of funny.
1: So then what was the time where you, I mean, I don't want to say like had to give up that dream, but maybe like, do you remember?
0: I do like really clearly. Um, so it was my junior year in high school and I, I was just, I mean, you're drawn to what you're successful at and I was successful at running and skiing. I just didn't love it as much. And, um, I kind of think I realized in my junior year in high school, I, you know, softball and track season were the same season. And it got to a point where it was like, you know, I was thinking about trying to ski in college and um, softball was just, it's so different. It's a little bit more, not political, but you know, it's not the fastest runner gets on the varsity team. There's a lot more to it. And so track just seemed like an easy option. So I started track for my first time ever as a junior in high school. And I realized that running was something that made more sense for me. But it was really hard because it was something that I'd spent so much time and energy and just had a love for. Um, but it didn't seem like a a long-term lifetime sport. Interesting.
1: So do you feel like you were picking the smarter, more logical choice, not the choice that you loved the most?
0: No, I think I was starting to love endurance sports, but it was a hard decision because of the social aspect of team sports. So I think. I was picking the logical decision in that way. Um, You know, I was picking something that my body felt better doing, whereas the other one was what my friends did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me about the first race you ever won. Do you remember? I won a 5K when I was 12. Um, Actually, that might have just been my age group. I don't remember. (laughs) Um, The first, like, significant race that I ever won was... um, I was a, a junior in high school and I won a cross country race. I, I won our first race of the season. And it was kind of like, you know, the year before it was good, but not great. And, um, I remember this distinctively because my coach said, whatever you do, don't lead the race. And there is this photo. It is classic. It is me. I have both feet off the ground and I'm leading the pack and I'm like shrugging my shoulders doing like, what? Sorry. I don't know. And, um, <laughs> it's, an awesome photo, but I won that race and I it kind of broke a lot of barriers for me. Like, oh my gosh, I, I'm kind of good at this. Um, yeah, it still sticks out.
1: So then what was the kind of trajectory from that into ultra
0: running? Oh man. Um, so I went to college at Northern Michigan university on a cross country ski scholarship. And, um, I, I mean, I, I love skiing. Like that became my new passion after softball. I, I loved everything about it. And, um, it's a very endurance, power endurance sport. So we did a lot of running, a lot of long running in the woods. And I, I kind of fell in love with that part of it, but I didn't become an actual runner until I finished college. I moved to Bozeman, Montana, and, um, I started a master's program and just with like the interest of time, running made a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. So I started running a little bit more and Bozeman has great trails, a really great like trail racing scene, more mountain racing. And I just kind of started entering a few of those races and did well. And I was like, this is really fun. But I didn't bridge into the ultra world until I moved to Oregon. And um, partly, it just was, I don't want to say random luck, because I would have done it eventually. But there was a 50K in Bend. And my boyfriend at the time, now husband, <laughs> signed up for it. And I was like, well, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it too. I want this experience. So I I ran this 50K. And it was it just blew my mind. Like, it was so hard. I cried. I laughed. Um, I finished, and I was like, "Wow, this is like this is awesome." And I found the longer I went, kind of the better it was for me. How so? I just placed better. Um, I'm not. Super fast, per se. You know, I like if I were to be like a, a faster, you know, sh- shorter distance runner, I would kind of blend in, I think. But in the longer races, it's more than just raw speed. There's so many other factors, and that kind of plays to my strengths, just problem solving through things, um, getting lost, having to troubleshoot. And I, I find that, um, you know, I do pretty well. So when you finish that, First
1: race or that first ultra, I guess, yeah. so d- define ultra for people,
0: so an ultra is anything over a marathon, so um fifty k is kind of the shortest distance that's thirty one miles um and then it goes all the way up to a hundred even a hundred plus miles, okay, so <laughs> <laughs> it's a long crazy, ways crazy,
1: so when you finished that race, did you think? Oh, I mean I could win these. Like this could be like a professional track for me.
0: Not no, not at that point. So um backing up, it so it was a fifty K, but it was also the USATF fifty um, K national championships. And so it, it did bring in a few I don't want to say it was like a stacked field, but it brought in some more um competitive runners and I finished second. So I finished well. And the the woman who won, she is probably my my mentor, my reason I'm in this sport. Her name is Cammy Semek. She lives in Bend also. And um she beat me by like twenty or thirty minutes. Like <laughs> she beat me by a lot. And I knew of Cammy. She's like a really established um ultra runner and just like shorter, like half marathon up distance runner in Bend. And she talked to me after and she was like, you know, you should think about doing these. And I was like, Oh, really? And um, we kind of just became friends. And she became like a really um, important mentor for me. And she actually is the reason that I got on the North Face team. Okay. Tell me that story. So she, you know, she was an, she was on the North Face team and, um, she had been on for many years and they're always looking for new up and coming runners. And, um, so Cami, I don't, I don't know if I had just made an impression on her or if, you know, I was a local, but she had recommended that, um, the team manager talk to me, um, the next year after I'd done 250 Ks and, um you know they were looking for someone new who might be interested in the ultra scene and i was just so excited about that so i feel really lucky that i was in the right place at the right time i met this wonderful person who has really opened up the doors for me in terms of making running as a career
1: yeah so what i appreciate most about that story is I don't know. I think that sometimes we aren't comfortable being honest about the role that luck plays in things. Like obviously you work really hard and of course mm-hmm. you also have some natural ability too. Right. And, yeah. but I think that it is always like a combination of factors. Like when you look at anyone who's successful in any field, right? Like it's always, they, there was someone there who was yeah. the mentor at the right time or, and not to say if you don't have that, you can't be successful. There's no like black and white thing, but I do mm-hmm. think that it's important it's like, people don't want to be honest about the fact that, well, also like I got a lucky break or I was
0: in the right place. I don't know. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, very true. I mean, I probably would have found ultra running, but my life may look much different right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm
1: curious. So when you say that you joined the team, Mm -hmm. I think, and I know I'm not alone in having this question on kind of looking at and I know that running isn't the only thing that you do when people are like, how
0: do you make money from that? Or what does it mean yeah. to be sponsored? And I know it's different for different athletes, but what does that look like for you? So when I first started, um, I was still in school. I was working on uh, my Ph.D. And so I was and actually while I was working, I was teaching full time at the community college in Bend. So I had a very busy schedule. So when I started, I was on, um, they have two levels of the team. They have the national team, then they have the global team. So in the national team, I just got some product and some support to go to races. And um, that worked really well for me because I was really busy and they would just help with the travel costs. And as I started racing more and got a little bit better, um, I moved up to the global team, which means you get a salary And then also just some other perks as being part of a sponsored athlete. So you, you know, you make money, but it's not necessarily enough to live off of. So for me, it was just a a means for me to work a little bit less and spend more time traveling and um, running. So, right now, um, you know, I still work and I'm actually very thankful that I do, but I have that extra financial support so that I can do some of the I can just make running more of a priority in my life. Well, yeah. And like you said, help getting to races that might be really expensive to travel yeah. to or that kind yeah. of
1: thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and if they're running something you love and something you're going to do anyway, having that team support, right, like only makes that better. Oh, it
0: makes it so great. And the North Face team, like we have an incredible family of runners, but we also have this incredible athlete team from other disciplines. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate most about the North Face. And, um, you know, there's not many teams like that, but we have climbers, we have snowboarders, we have skiers, and we get together once a year. We have an athlete summit and it is the most fun week. They just, you know, we're just playing outdoors and it's the most badass athletes and you get them out of context, like out of their sport and they're just normal people. And it's really
1: cool. No, that's awesome. I didn't think about that, the benefits of being having a sponsor that's not just a running company.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. And part of um also what I I appreciate is that they're not really driven by results. Like, I mean, racing is important. That's how you establish yourself, how you build your brand, but to them it's more important who we are as individuals, you know, what we do with our social media platform and the adventures and projects. And that's kind of more of like not necessarily a typical running sponsor, but more of like a, you know, a climber or a skiing, like they, they build their brand by doing these adventures and that's kind of how running is to them. So I I love that. Like last year I was injured and it didn't really matter. Yeah. No, it sounds like it's a good fit for
1: you. Yeah. That's awesome. So going back to, let's say like the first couple of longer races that you did, what were some either Early mistakes you made or lessons you learned that made you think, oh, I definitely want to do this differently next time.
0: Yeah, um, I fortunately I had some great mentors, um, so I think I avoided a lot of the newbie rookie mistakes. Um, but I mean, one of the biggest things that I learned in the first couple of years was nutrition, um, fueling during my runs, and it's not something that comes naturally. You don't think about like, oh, I want to eat three gels an hour. That's not something that a normal person will just do. So um there were some mistakes <laughs> with that for sure. But I learned and I mean with um my education like I actually tailored my PhD at that time to sports nutrition because I was super interested in it selfishly in a way. Um and I think that really helped me take running to the next level. Um Another thing I also learned was about rest and recovery and respecting your body. Um, And this is something I see a lot of new runners just kind of neglecting. Um, You know, you can race every weekend if you're doing a shorter race, but an ultra, it just takes so much out of you physically and mentally. And if you don't respect that time, um, your body will just break down. So I've had a few injuries and, um, you know, that was something that I had to learn maybe the hard way, but I'm you know, much smarter I think now.
1: <laughs> yeah, so of all the different types
0: of courses that you
1: have raced, what are the elements or the features that like play to your strengths? Like what kind of course do you love?
0: I kind of love I mean, I love a mix. Um I'm definitely not the fastest runner, so I like a hilly mountain course. Um, but I, and I should say that like there's a middle ground. Um, I'm not as great like in the the steep mountains, like UTMB, um, in Chamonix, France, those mountains just crush me, but something like in the U S <laughs> that has like a lot of rolling Hills. Um, I tend to do better, but in like the hundred mile distance, I think that plays to my strengths because something is going to go wrong. There is no one who runs a hundred miles and finishes and like Everything went great. Like, that was awesome. Um, so, when there's adversity, like the heat, or your stomach falls apart, or you get lost, or your headlamp goes out, or, you know, just something, there's an animal chasing you, those kind of things um, kind of bring out the best in me almost. Um, I'm just really good about accepting and like changing course, prob- like problem solving through it. Um, so, I-, I like that aspect. I mean, I have said (laughs) my brain just went like, I have so many questions for you. So,
1: okay, something that's really interesting to me about what you just said, and you you mentioned it before too, is this idea of the skill of problem solving, which isn't something in a shorter, it's not anything that I've ever thought of as Mm -hmm. a runner or with running, because I mean, I guess it, I mean, when you're running a hundred miles, right. And you're running for so long. right. So I don't know. Talk to me more about that. Like what kind of problems are you solving? What does that look like? Oh
0: my gosh. So, so many things can come up when you're by yourself in the woods for 20 hours or whatever it takes. Um, so Things like like normally that happen is um, just stomach issues. That's a really normal one when you're trying to fuel, and especially at like a hot race. Um, So you can have the best laid out nutrition plan, but things can go south, and then you have to figure it out. And there's a choice: you can either just stop fueling, and then everything falls apart, or you can just try things. And a lot of times, it's easier to just kind of stop fueling. Um, That's and that just usually ends in a DNF. And so for me, I'm like, okay, this isn't working. What can I do? And a great example of that, um, UTMB 2015, my stomach fell apart really early. Like, I'm almost embarrassed about this because I do nutrition, but um, probably like at mile 30. um, And this is a 106 mile race. And so that's really early to be having problems. And I was just suffering. I'm like, I cannot eat any of this food that I have. So at the next aid station, I filled my um, bladder in my pack with Coke. I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to make this work. I'm just going to have Coke instead of water to get some calories. And um, it sort of worked, except I forgot to um, think about the fact that when you're running, your bladder is sloshing and Coke starts to... um, like starts to um, get that CO2 buildup. So my, I was running and all of a sudden my pack was just like expanding. And I was like, what is going on? So I had to like stop and like burp the pack. And it was just like, (laughs) um, something I didn't think of, but you know, had I stopped, not done that, um, I don't think I would have finished the race. So
1: for you, if you're running, a hundred miles and let's say it's going like decently well, right? Like, like Mm -hmm. you said, there's always going to be some problems, but it's not somewhere,
0: you know, on like the good end of the spectrum. How long does that take you? Well, it really depends on the course. So, um, my first hundred miler, it went really well, like very few things went wrong. Um, I mean, i worked through a lot of things, but I ran, um, 1801, 18 hours and one minute. Um, That was my shortest one. The longest one was UTMB 2015. That took me 30 hours. So, um, I mean, in just like the courses were very different, but also like time just gets eaten up when you spend time at the aid station or if you, um, you know, are walking. Well, yeah, that was another question or that I feel like a question people
1: would have is like of a hundred of those miles, how much of that or how often are you walking?
0: (laughs) A lot of it. Um, a lot of the uphills, um, again, depending on the course, like Western states, it's, um, it starts in Squaw Valley and ends in Auburn. So it's a net downhill. Um, but there's a lot of uphill at the beginning. So you're hiking those steep uphills. Um, but then at the end, when it's like more runnable terrain, you know, you're trying to run most of it. So, um, but there's more walking the longer the race because you can't, you just can't run for. 30 hours straight. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so this might be a really random question,
1: but very selfish question that I'm going to ask you. So I mentioned before, um, the hike that I did last summer, the backpacking mm-hmm. trip that I did. So I'm in the process of planning another one for the yeah. summer and, um, I'm planning on doing the Washington section of the BCT. That. Yeah, That's and so exciting. The advice that I, or like people have said that it's a lot of elevation, like a lot of steep uphills and downhills mm-hmm. and, I, I don't know if it's me or technique or whatever. I have such a hard time descending, like going oh, yeah. downhill. Talk mm-hmm.
0: to me about how to so, be a good descender. I feel you. Um, I used to be a terrible descender and, um, it was so frustrating when I would run a race, I would do well in the uphills and then everyone would fly by me on the downhills. And I was like, what is going on? So, um, the good news is it's trainable. Um, cause I literally was terrible and, um, it, you know, I just practiced a lot and it sounds kind of silly, but I would do like, you know how you do hill repeats, like uphills, I would do them downhill and like just practice being uncomfortable, going a little faster, letting my legs turn over. And, um, I did them on pavement to start just to like build that confidence, but that does two things. One, it just gets you used to going down faster and being more trusting of your body. And two, it, um, I call it seasoning your quads. <laughs> so it just destroys them. They are so sore and then, um, they build up and they get used to that impact. So I think, you know, you really have to make a point to practice it. Um, and like every downhill, I would like not just like, run down it like easy and like I would focus and people were probably like, Why is she so serious? But it made a big difference. Um and then I also ran behind people who were really good at descending and just watched what they did. And I would stay with them for like five steps and then they'd be gone. But it really helped me to see like how to really run downhill more efficiently. And now I would say it's my strength. Interesting.
1: Okay. I mean I wonder the differences between hiking and running, obviously, because, like, you're not going to be going that fast, yeah. right? but cause, I mean, like, this weekend or this past weekend, I did kind of my first hike of the year, right? Like, we live here in Bend. It's mm-hmm. finally nice enough. And I went to Smith Rock. Yeah. And I went, like, up the front side of Misery and down the back. And, like, mm-hmm. even that that look with those switchbacks yeah. and how, like, the rock is so slippery, yep. I'm, first of all, terrified. I feel like I'm, like, going at an angle sideways and, like, Afraid that I'm going to, sl- I don't know. I'm like, yeah. what could I be
0: doing better? No. So I think it's the same idea practice. So just put yourself out there. I know it's uncomfortable, but it'll get easier each time. And then um, the same thing seasoning your quads, running or hiking can be even more, um, make your quads more sore because of all the breaking. That's when you get sore. So just getting used to that stimulus and then having good shoes that you can just like really trust. Like you know, you can you can put your foot down, and the shoe is going to respond. So mm-hmm. I think that's important for downhills. Yeah,
1: it's funny what you mentioned about the braking. I feel like that's a lot of what it is. Is the like almost like the
0: like trying to stop the yeah. momentum, like your body wants to go faster <laughs> right. or
1: go for race. So that's what
0: shoes do you wear? Um, I have a pair of the North face ultra trail. Um, they have really good tread on the bottom and they, they just fit my feet. Well, I've got a narrow foot with a high arch. So something that holds my foot in securely is really important for downhills. Okay. Well, I'm going to try those on. Yeah. Cause that was
1: my other big thing from last year was I had so much foot pain. Part of that oh was being an idiot. And part of it was just, it was what it was now. I'm like, I have to solve this. I'm going to well, try on all the shoes. Foot pain.
0: And actually it's funny you say that. Um, socks matter almost more than shoes. And I actually have a pair of socks for you today. <laughs> um, oh my God. Are you the best? <laughs> yeah. So I, I made a sock this year and it's called the Stephanie sock. Um, and what? Dry, yeah. Um, Drymax is um, one of my sponsors, but they make they're, and honestly, I, I use their socks for years, um, and I will say that they do really help prevent blisters. So um, you can try these out and see if they help. Yeah, I miss <laughs> that. I wore
1: um, the the socks I brought last year. I brought a pair of Ingenji socks, which is mm-hmm. what I've worn running for years, and I brought a pair of Darn Tough socks. Um, I don't know. I've been told to get like basically the thinnest socks possible. Like you think thicker is going to be more cushiony, but I'm dude, I'm super excited. This is my, basically my project (laughs) for the next couple months is buy a bunch of shoes in like sizes larger. So my feet can swell and just hike a bunch and you should be a product tester. I should be Take things. things, All right. Yeah. We'll we'll (laughs) talk about that. That's awesome. Um, okay. So you lightly mentioned Western States before. So quick
0: overview, first of all, on what that race is (sighs) that race. Like I just get chills hearing the name. Um, so Western States is a hundred mile race, um, in California from Squaw to Auburn. And it's a really iconic race because it was the first hundred mile race one or first hundred mile race actually run. And it was a, is a horse race. And, um, one of the guys racing it with his horse, um, the horse went lame. So he had to like walk, hike, run, the entire course. And he made a bet with one of his friends that he, he thought he could run the entire course in one day, 24 hours. And um, that was something at the time that was just unheard of. Like, you know, a marathon was the longest distance. And so, um, this guy, his name is Gordy Ainsley. He, you know, set out and run, ran the course and finished under 24 hours. And that became the Western States course. And to this day, it's, you know, the, there's a, a big finishing prize, a really sought after prize, um, silver belt buckle, if you finish under 24 hours, but it's to me, the most, I mean, it has so much energy and excitement and history behind it. So it's it's really a race. It means a lot to me. It's a hard race to qualify for, isn't it? It is. So though you have to run a qualifier to um, get into the lottery, and then the lottery. You know, so many people want to run; they only let hundred or three hundred and fifty people into the race. So it's it's you know, people wait years and years to get in. Um, if you're top ten, you get an invitation back each year. But if you miss that, like me, <laughs> um, I was I had been top ten in the past, and then last year I was injured, so I had to requalify. And there's a couple races; they're called golden ticket races, and um, they're again really competitive because people want to get a spot. But if you are first or second in one of those races, you can entry. So that just happened for you. Didn't that it? just happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm still like <laughs>
1: excited about it. So, do you think it's accurate to say that Western States is the most prestigious hundred miler? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're gonna talk about you won that race. It was what, 2014? <laughs> 2014, yeah. What would you say were like the building blocks or the factors that led, like the most important factors that led to that win
0: for you? Um, I had great mentors and I was like a sponge. I just like, you know, the people that I was surrounded by um were really into Western states and they had so much advice to give. So that played a big role. Um Two, I was really smart about what I had, like my talents, my strengths, and my weaknesses, and I didn't try to manipulate them. Like, I just was really realistic about my training. I didn't go crazy. I didn't try to manipulate my diet. I didn't do all this crazy heat training. And I just, you know, got on the start line feeling healthy, feeling like I prepared as best I could. And that really paid off for me rather than like some people get really panicky and try to find these like things that can make the 1% difference. And whereas really they need to look at the bottlenecks, like maybe getting more sleep and I might help you. So I really tried to um, focus on those things. So thinking back to that race, which is probably
1: like burned in your memory anyway, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um,
0: what was the lowest moment? Oh, I mean, there was a few. Um, I, I mean, it was my first hundred miler. So I didn't, <laughs> yeah, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, so, you know, ha- like half the race, it's like, this is the longest I've ever run. Um, and I remember I, I came into Forest Hill, which is, um, 60 miles in. And I was in the lead, it's hot, so hot, and you can pick up your pacer there. And um I stopped for a second and my knee just started to hurt. Like, I've had this in the past and it's um actually caused me to DNF at races. And I was like, crap, like, this is starting, how am I going to get through this? My stomach was starting to go south. And... um You know, it was, it was a combination of just putting one foot in front of the other and just keeping a positive attitude as much as I could that kept me going. Um, and really the last 20 miles, you're kind of like, (laughs) I won't want to say it's low point the whole time, but you're just hurting like everything hurts and you're, just trying to finish. And 20 miles doesn't sound like a lot when you're, um, you <sighs> 20 know. Miles sounds like well, a lot. when you're like, you're like, you already did 80. You're almost there. It's like, no, you're not really almost there.
1: It's like with a marathon, <laughs> right? The final six miles. Right. Yeah. It's yeah.
0: like, oh, and I hate when people are like, oh, you're almost there. Like, no, I'm not. Okay. I'm <laughs> almost there when I can see the finish line.
1: <laughs> okay. So talk to me about your
0: kind of emotional, uh, landscape, the last mile of that. Oh my gosh. It was incredible. Like I didn't really allow myself to think that I could win because I was so concerned about like, can you run a hundred miles? Like let's not blow up. Um, but there were a couple things. One, right before the last mile, um, you come down, um, the steep trail and you cross this bridge called No Hands Bridge. It's mile 97, I believe, 96, 97. And it's all lit up. Um, you know, there's lights lining the bridge and it's, um, not a crewed aid station. So that means like your crew, crews can't be there. So it's just the aid station people working. Um, so it's really quiet and I came down and, um, you know, it's, I'm the first female to come through and, you know, they're excited. And I look and right next to the aid station is some of my friends from Bend, um, Uh, Rebecca Bell and her husband Keith Bell and their two kids. And they had made the trip down to like watch me run my first 100 miler. And they were at a spot where it was like a really tough spot to be in. And that just like, I don't know, it just lifted me. It, It meant so much to me to see them there and be able to actually see them. Whereas like some of the other aid stations, there's just crazy like people all over the place. So that was like, wow, this is like, I got goosebumps, I think, as I was racing. Um, and then after that, you climb, you climb, this is like the worst part. Um, you climb this really steep hill. It's like a thousand feet um, before you descend into the track in Auburn. And I remember getting to the the pavement, which means there's less than a mile to go. And um, everyone in your crew can run with you into the finish. And so my crew joined me and I was pretty close to breaking 18 hours. And um, Zach, my husband, was like, let's go. Like you can break 18. I was like, no, I just, I want to savor this moment. And so we ran down together and you entered the track and you run like, um, three quarters of a lap. And I just like, remember floating, like the lights were on and there's all these little kids high fiving me. And like, honestly, it was my dream to win Western States. And if you would have asked me before the race, you know, how, what could be the most, you know, Important race you could ever win, I would say Western States. So it was surreal, and like I will, I will never forget that feeling. Oh my god, I'm gonna cry. That's an incredible <laughs> story. Ha, oh, so much. It's funny the like I, so much emotion. I, for, yeah, I wasn't even there. It's yeah, my it's it's magical, and you can't really explain to someone what it means. Like there's something about the hundred mile distance that it just you know it, it strips you down raw. So you're, you're such in just a pure vulnerable state and it doesn't happen in shorter races by shorter. I mean like 50 mile and under, which most people wouldn't say are short, but in a hundred mile there, it's just getting to the finish line. There's so much more emotion, like just raw emotion and satisfaction that your body was broken, your mind, your spirit, everything was broken and yet you kept going. So it's, it's really a different kind of feeling. Yeah. Going into that race, did you think you could win? Like, was your goal to win? No. My goal was to finish a 100 miler. And um, I mean, that said, I knew I could do well. I had done well in the shorter distances. And so my hope was to be top 10 so that I could come back. But, you know, it's it's really hard to have like a time goal or a place goal when you've never run that far. And I think, you know, for anyone like finishing 100 is really good for their first time. <laughs> Yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. Yeah. That's
0: incredible. <laughs> Cross that finish line.
1: Yeah. So what happened for you? Not, I mean, not like step-by-step step after that, but what happened mentally? Like, was there a shift of, Oh my gosh, if this is possible, what else is possible? Like, how were you feeling, you know, on the heels of that?
0: Yeah. It, and that's really interesting. So, I mean, I was kind of, um, you finish and you're just like, so you can't believe it. Um, but and this is like the very short term after, there's kind of this um, post-race blues, I call it, that sets in. And it's kind of interesting because you can like win Western States or you can have like a crummy race. It doesn't really matter. You just get really down after. And I think your body is used to such a high level of like moving and all of a sudden you're just kind of broken. So to me, like, you know, the the joy of the race really I mean, it hit me right away, but um, I would say it was more delayed because after you're just trying to like work through how bad you're feeling (laughs) and recovering and that sort of thing. Um, But it really made me think that, you know, I running, I mean, there are, there's so much I can do with it um, in terms of like races and like the hundred mile distance opens up a lot, um, a lot of opportunities, but more so it made me think about like what I could do with my platform that it was allowing me to have suddenly, you know, all these people started following me on social media and it was kind of cool. And it really made me aware that I have a larger reach now and that's really cool.
1: Yeah. The the post-race blues or the post-any-big-thing blues, right? I think that's really common, yeah. es- especially I wonder... Because you said before, if if someone would have asked you before that race, like, what was the, you know, the most magical win you could have or or whatever your phrasing was that you would have said that it's kind of a strange thing. If you accomplish your fantasy goal, right, the thing that you Mm -hmm. would daydream about, and then you did that, then it's kind of like, now what? Now what?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there was that, um, and there were other races, um, that were appealing to me, but I think just going back to Western States, like I still have those feelings. Like, you know, crossing the finish line, it doesn't matter if you're first or last, just crossing crossing that finish line is magical. So I think in a way, um, a difference with 100 mile or ultra races is it's about the journey. And that Mm -hmm. sounds really corny, but it kind of is because like, I mean, you know, it's cool to finish, but it's not like there's prize money. Usually it's not like there's like all these people at the finish line. You're really doing it for you. So I, I feel fortunate that, you know, I have won my ideal race, but there's still like, it's still exciting to go back. And the, the following year I finished third and, um, I struggled a lot more. I had just things go, um, go South for me much earlier. And I'm in ways I'm more proud of that finish because I stuck it out. So, yeah,
1: yeah. when things don't go well, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, I can't I can't imagine. I'm still thinking about like running 100 miles. It's so crazy.
0: Would you describe yourself as a competitive person? With myself? Yes. Um I definitely am a type AAA, my mom would call me. Um so I I am competitive. You know, and I am in races, but my competitors for the most part are my best friends. So like in, um, 2015, I finished third and I was in second until like the last couple of miles and someone passed me and she's one of my good friends. And my first thought was like, wow, great job, Casey. Not like, oh crap, she's passing me. But, um, so I just don't feel that competitive feeling when I'm in a race like that. It's more like a, it's more like we're all working together in a way.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. So if it's not the competition,
0: why do you run or why do you race? Yeah, I and I thought about that a lot last year. So the reason that I run and race is because it's an opportunity for me to push my body and to prove to myself that I'm stronger than I think. You know, like I mentioned, you get totally stripped down to your just raw self. And I love that feeling. I love that suffering. I know that sounds really just morbid, but it's such a cool feeling to just push your body and you learn a lot about yourself. Um, and I, I just thrive off that. Yeah. I'm, so this is
1: hitting right in one of my like personal curiosities,
0: like interests
1: a lot, this idea of intentional suffering mm-hmm. and right. Cause obviously we're not going to glorify suffering that's forced upon right. someone, right. That's not what we're talking no. about, but I mean, you're choosing to do this right when mm-hmm. you could choose something that's much more comfortable and not nearly as hard, right. Or right. scary. So, I'm curious, looking back for you on your life, were you raised to value this or like where does this come from?
0: I always like to push my body. I just like how it felt. Um, I mean, I was a very, I know I'm a very physical person. So that's how I learn best. That's how I understand things best. When I need to clear my head, I need to go do something physical. So I think that was just part of my nature. But I also feel really, I'm intrinsically motivated. Um And so to me, being able to, intentionally suffer like that, those times then afterwards where you're relaxing, they just seem so much more enjoyable to me. And I think that's always how I've been.
1: Yeah. So I'm curious about your mental self-talk during hard things like during hard moments, whether in races or training runs, like what is like, what are your, if you open up like Mm -hmm. Stephanie's mental
0: toughness toolbox,
1: like what's in there?
0: Yeah. So this is really cool actually, because it's so different on a normal day-to-day basis. I'm super hard on myself. Um, you know, I, I expect perfection and I, you know, I'm, I'm always like, Oh, that wasn't quite good enough, which is something I'm working on. But, um, in a race I shift, I have this switch in my mind where I'm so kind to myself when I'm racing and when things get tough i'm like stephanie you're doing such a good job or just run the best you can to that tree and then you can walk and i'm like so positive and i don't know why that happens i've really been trying to figure that out um but i'm really good at self talk and i talk myself through things and i'll talk out loud just to myself and the trees and it really helps when you know if i were to like You know, tell myself how poor I'm doing or how bad it's going. I don't think I would finish. So when I'm, you know, encouraging myself, and it just comes naturally. You know, it it seems to really help the process. Well, and
1: I'm sure if it didn't come naturally, that like anything else, it's a skill that can be built on, right? Like being able to recognize kind of the downward spiral thoughts and interrupt them and replace them, yeah, that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm always interested in people's like mental toughness.
0: Yeah. It's, How to be tougher. And I don't, it's not something I think about. It just kind of happens. And one thing that um, people find amazing is that when I say I run 100 miles, they're like, what do you think about? And I'm present the whole time. Like I can't, my mind doesn't wander, which is so weird. That is very, like, that's weird. a yeah. long time to be like in the moment. Do you feel like there's anything that helps you drop into that? The movement. Um, I think I'm just focused on what I'm doing, and it's not like I, you know, I'm just like so serious and like racing with my head down. But I'm just, you know, really focused on what I'm doing and the people and the nature around me. So I think trails maybe help me to drop in like that because there's always something to be thinking about or aware of, right? Like looking at your footing and seeing what's happening, right? right. Yeah, and making sure to look up and take in the the beauty every once in a while
1: yeah the the mental toughness the intentional suffering like it's it's so interesting to me. I feel like like anything else, the only way that you get better at it is by doing it right more, right, mm-hmm. and that if you aren't in the habit of doing hard things, then you do something hard, and of course it's gonna be awful right
0: that totally it's, yeah. it's type two fun um yeah. yeah, and the other thing I think is cool is you know people always say like oh, you know you you're lucky you can do this. And in a way I am with, you know, I have genetics playing on my side, but I think anyone can. And the cool thing about trails and ultras is you do see more of that. Like anyone is doing it and, you know, it takes a while to run a hundred miles, but I truly think if someone had a goal to like be that they could, you know, you Mm -hmm. can, you can make these choices that can allow your body to be able to do these things. Cause we all have the ability somewhere in us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I, yeah,
1: I mean, I don't know that I would ever want to run hundred miles. <laughs> well, that's another I, question. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's yeah, all, yeah. it's all relative. No, but I do think it is really worthwhile to like dig into in any situation, the stories you're telling yourself about what is and isn't possible, right? right. Like Putting aside actual limitations, right? And yeah. Being able-bodied is a privilege, of course, you know, but if once, if we're talking, you know, about people who do have that privilege, right? It's looking at like, it's not that I think I couldn't do a hundred. I just don't right. know if that that's what I want to do, but it's, it's, it is interesting though, to just pay attention to that. Like, well, I can never do that. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's interesting. You Why not might yeah. be
0: able to? Yeah. And, um, back to the North face, I think they really kind of foster that, you know, like they're, their hashtag never stop exploring and just the things that some of their athletes have accomplished has really opened the doors for me. And, you know, it's kind of funny to think about like running and like, it's, it's a very controlled environment, right? Like we're running around a mountain and there's aid stations. Whereas I think of some of the other athletes, like Conrad, anchor, and Jimmy Chin, like on a portal ledge on the side of a mountain where they could die at any second. I'm like, what I do is so tame. So that kind of gives me more perspective because I'm surrounded by these people who do things like that. And I'm like, wow. I mean, the amount of suffering the human body is capable of is amazing. Yeah, and. I don't know. I, I, I have, I've been thinking about this a lot lately about,
1: I mean, for me again, I feel, I feel like I keep coming back to the height cause that's like so fresh in my mind. Yeah. That it's almost like against all common sense. I want to do this again. Like it was awful. It was so hard. I had mostly had a terrible time and yet like here we are. I know but, like, there's something about that, that I, I still, I feel like maybe I could do it better or I learned some things yeah. or but there is something about doing a really hard thing that is, that appeals to me.
0: I think our bodies are like programmed for that. You know, it could be like, I don't know, an evolutionary thing, but just like we like to push ourselves. And I don't know, like there's something about like suffering and having be terrible. Like I, I'm not going to lie and say that, you know, running a hundred miles feels great. It doesn't. It's so hard. And, um, but yet, you know, it's, that makes you feel good in a way. Like you, you learn about yourself and not just physically, but like spiritually, maybe it's like this experience. And I think we're drawn to that for some like odd reason. No, I mean, I think so too. I think that's the rise in popularity of the longer distance
1: running and Mm -hmm. a lot of this kind of stuff. Like, uh, uh, a quote, I love Mary Oliver and her poetry. And I was thinking about that again, a lot on my hike. And there's this one, this one line from one of her poems, um, that goes, are you breathing just a little and calling it a life? Yeah, And that like, for some reason was like on repeat in my head of like how often it's easy to just kind of coast through things or skirt by or like that they're the more intense the experience, even if it is intentional suffering, like that's also where the beauty is.
0: I, I love that, and that resonates with me a lot. I, I mean, I think I think my life is rich because I do those things. Mm, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wait. So, say more about that. What do you mean, rich? How? Oh, yeah. I feel like my life is very rich because I put myself out there and I, I take these risks, and because of that, I'm able to really, I don't know, just do more, feel more, feel more satisfied, and it's a really cool thing. Yeah, I think there. I mean, and not to kind of have a fetish about like
1: the extreme situations. Cause I'm not trying to do that either, but there is something about like pushing to the edges of things,
0: pushing to the edges and to, you know, give a smaller scale example. Like it doesn't have to be epic. This is something that I've really been trying to, to, um, tell people is it doesn't, you don't have to go like <laughs> run a hundred miles or like summon a mountain. You can be, Epic in your spin class, you know, like, and get that suffering. It it can be a micro adventure. It can be just little things you do on a day to day basis.
1: No, that's super interesting. I think, well, I think that's one of the misconceptions that people have that it's kind of all or nothing, right? Like, if I'm not. You know, running a hundred miles or doing this thing for two months or climbing the tallest, whatever, that it's not worthwhile as opposed right. to like what I'm taking from where you just said is that it's almost like it's an attitude, it's a perspective, it's an approach to life. Like there's nothing maybe inherently epic about a spin class, but if you have, if it's what you bring to that, like some experiences like running a hundred miles, it's going to give it to you whether yeah. you go into it with that or not, right? right? But <laughs> being able to cultivate that and like, an adventure can be what, you know, it can be
0: something in your backyard. It can be, you know. Totally. And I love that because, you know, we all have things in our lives and it's really easy to just be like, I don't have time for this or, you know, I can't go, it's raining today or like, I don't want to be outside, but you can cultivate that feeling in, in a lot of different ways. And I do think it's a mindset and it's, it's a choice and attitude. And, um, I feel fortunate for whatever things have shaped me in this way that I'm able to do that.
1: Mhm. So now, I mean and we'll talk about last year and being injured and everything, mm-hmm. but um n- like where you are now, what does a typical training week look like for you and what are you So I mean you're prepping for Western States, right? Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, so I have um a few build-up races that are going to be really challenging for me because I'm not Targeting them, right? Like I'm totally just using them as stepping stones, but they're kind of a uh, competitive races, <laughs> so it's a good ego check for me. But it's also like kind of going to be a tough, um, tough thing to go through and execute. But um, anyway, so I'm I'm leading up to these races, and I have one this weekend. So I'll just talk about my training last week because it's fresh yeah. in my mind. So. I'm not a high mileage person. I go off time and not miles. Um, that said, like training for a hundred miles, you do tend to run a little bit more than your average person. But um, normally I take Mondays off. So today's Monday, not doing anything, maybe a yoga class. And that has been really important for me to to kind of take that day to rest, recover, absorb, adapt um, mentally and physically. Um so Monday's an off day. Tuesday's usually an easy run. Um, and I usually run for an hour, um, sometimes an hour 15. And then um, strength training. Strength is huge to me. Um, I, you know, I didn't, y- well, I've always done it, but now I've really focused on it. And it's made a big difference just in how my body feels and how it recovers. So I'm really, I make it a point to get in the gym, even if I don't want to. Um, Wednesday, I usually do some sort of speed work. And, um, this year it's a little bit different because kind of after my injury, I reevaluated what I was doing with training. And, um, I kind of thought I was doing too much in terms of like running long distances and then also trying to do speed work. And for me, that was a recipe for breaking my body down. So now my speed work is a little bit more, I guess, gentle on my, mind and body it'll be like a fart lick. so like three minutes on one minute off rather than like eight hundreds on the track and sometimes it's it only happens every other week um, but normally wednesday would be my speed work day it's usually like 10 miles of total time ta- or you know total workout and then in the afternoon i'll do like four miles um thursday is totally recovery day and i try to cross train right now because we have tons of snow <laughs> so uh, my body does better with that um I think when I started to get better at running, I started running more. You know, it was like this, I thought it would be like a positive, it felt like positive reinforcement. I was running more, I was getting faster, but I think it was just actually the opposite. I think doing more cross-training Kept me healthy and fresh. And that was another thing that I kind of looked back at and was like, wow, like you used to be more multi sport and you were happier and you were less injured. So I've been trying to get back to those roots a little bit more. Um, So Thursdays cross training, like an hour, two hours, maybe if I'm skiing or something. And then um, Friday is kind of just an easy run again, like maybe. 60 to 90 minutes. And then, um, Saturday, Sunday are my long runs. So I usually do back to back long runs. And, um, you know, it's somewhere between like two to five hours (laughs) depending. And I don't go for miles, honestly, because if I'm running at Smith rock, which is really a lot of elevation, really slow hiking. Um, you know, if I, if I run for four hours, that's a really long time yet, it might only be like 20 miles, but, um, Time on feet is so much more important. So that's kind of like a typical flow for me. And yoga, yoga as much as I can. Um, I've always had a yoga practice, but you know, I used to do maybe two classes a week and um, that was pretty good. But I've really started to incorporate it more and more focused on recovery into just most days if I can. And it's made a lot of difference. Like, just in my body and my flexibility, but also the mind-body connection. Um, I've always felt like that was pretty strong for me, but I think I just took it to another level. Yeah, well,
1: Erin um, Taylor was on last season and um, I know that you're doing stuff with her, yes. right? Do so you want to talk about oh, that a little bit? Oh, it's been so
0: great. So um, like I said, yoga, was, it's always been important to me, but sometimes you know, the, the typical classes are not geared towards athletes. So what Erin does is... She has these videos that are specifically targeted towards running and recovery um, and cycling as well and, you know, building efficiency or helping you to learn how to use your body correctly for, you know, good running mechanics. Um, and the videos are anywhere between five minutes and 30 minutes. And I just love them because I can come home back from a long run and do like the, the five minute post long run reset. And, you know, you always have five minutes mm-hmm. to do them. And I think they're great because it's not like another workout. Like I don't need another workout. I need to really get into my body and like, you know, help it to start recovering. I need to stretch things out, or I need to like teach myself to use my core when I'm in a running position. So, it's been really great for me to to partner with Erin and have these tools, um, and I can do them anywhere. Yeah, she's great. I,
1: I mean, one of the things that I was that she and I talked about, or that I was sharing with her when she was on the show, was you know. It was her videos, her approach that really broke me of that mindset of, well, if it's not 45 or 60 minutes, like it's not worth it or it doesn't count. And it was like, I was just doing another workout, right? As opposed to looking at like the incredible, like five minutes, 10 minutes, those videos, I do feel better afterwards. You do. And I mean, anyone who's interested, if you listen to her episode, she has a, a code for a free month for you guys, which is awesome. Um, but something that you said when we were talking off air, um, about kind of yoga and this role, you said sometimes it's not about working harder, but working differently that helps you move forward. Yes. So we you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah. And that kind of, um, goes back to like, you know, working with your strengths and pr- trying to maximize those. So rather than just do more, like run more or run harder, like take a look at the full picture. And like, you know, I, I definitely have strengths and I try to maybe focus on them a little bit more than trying to address my weaknesses, but also like what else is important to my body? Like the nutrition, um, the rest, the keeping my body flexible, the strength training. And I think like when you open, when you shift your paradigm a little bit and look at those things, like there's so much that you can do to make you a happier, healthier, stronger, better person and runner
1: for that matter. Yeah. Looking at the whole picture and not just like pushing, grinding so much harder. Right.
0: Like if you're tired and you're not feeling good, like most people's intuition is to try harder, right? Like push harder. Oh, I'm slow today. Whereas I've tried to like really think about that. Like this happened to me last week and I was running and I felt like I was dragging like, Oh, I'm so slow right now. What is going on? Rather than be like, Oh, you're out of shape. You need to work harder. I was like, you need some time off. And I took two days off and came back feeling great.
1: Listen, one of the things, because my experience with running, obviously having not been athletic or sporty at all as a child, like you are, I mean, I came into this as an adult and so Mm -hmm. it was really like, couldn't run for two minutes when I first started. Like it was a very discreet, like couldn't do any of those things now can do these other things. And obviously I learned a lot from it, but one of the biggest things that I learned, and I think you only get this through the experience of doing physical things over and over is be like the ability to be able to be honest with myself about exactly what you just said, like the difference between I need to push through this versus no, yes. I need a break. Right. And that's, yes. it's one of those things that other people have asked me about or new runners have asked. And it's, it's hard. It's like an, it really is an intuitive thing. It like is intuitive. sometimes the answer is like suck. Like when I wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm not really in the mood to do this thing. Okay. Well, just cause you're not in the mood to do it doesn't mean that you can't do it. Yeah. And being able to know like when to push versus when to, you know, give yourself more rest.
0: Yeah. And I think that comes with experience and trusting your body and your mind and, um, using yourself as an end of one. So everyone is so different and you know yourself better than anyone. Like I, I have a coach that I work with, but, I still know myself. So today, he actually had me, um, had a run for today. And I was like, you know what, Monday's my day off, and it, there's a, you know, a, a reason he had it written down. But I just went with my intuition of, in the past it has worked better for me when I've been on, erred on the side of less. So use yourself and like take the lessons that you've learned to really apply it to your, um, your training and your future because you know your body better than anyone. So for someone listening, let's
1: say who is a runner and has experience running, maybe has done half marathons, marathons, whatever is interested in ultras and has Mm -hmm. never done them. What would be your advice or like things to tell
0: someone, an aspiring ultra runner? Oh, I've got so much advice. (laughs) Um, so one of the biggest pieces of advice I got when I became, when I got into ultras was to take it really slow in terms of not racing too much and not, you know, take it one, one race at a time and give yourself plenty of time to build up and recover from it. um, and less is more. So you don't have to run a hundred miles a week. You just have to focus on the quality. And, um, I think, you know, like it's really cool running an ultra, um, but just make sure that it's the reasons you want to do it are like really coming from internally and not just like, it's a fad right now. Um, because then it's, it really makes it hard to, to do it for those intrinsic reasons and to appreciate and take care of your body as you're preparing.
1: Yeah. That's funny. I mean, that makes me think of a story I've told a million times on and off the podcast. I was training for my first ultra a couple of years ago and I was so miserable Yeah, and I finally had this like, you know, breakdown moment, like deep into Shevlin Park run, you know, when I was, I realized that if I couldn't, post a finish line picture, like on the internet that I wouldn't do it. I'm like, well, that's not a good enough reason. So you're done with this. Like it was yeah. a very ego moment of like, oh, I'm doing this because I want people, I want people to think a certain thing about like, and it's, I mean, I guess people can do goals. You can achieve goals for any reason that you want. But for me, I realized I was doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah.
0: And I think that's really important. And, you know, a lot of, I, I will say, I see a lot of people um, coming into the 50 K distance right now, and it's really great for the sport, but it, it's also like, you know, Running is for me, I I am I am a runner. My body is made to run. Like I wanted to be a skier for so long, but it just that's not me. I had to try and work really hard to be like a B plus athlete. And um the same for running for other people. Like, you know, for some people that's just not their calling. And you know, it doesn't have to be running. You can push yourself in so many other ways. And I think finding that, you know, that thing that resonates most with you is probably going to be a better thing than just doing it because like, Oh, I want to be part of this
1: movement. Um, going back to what you were saying before, when you were talking about your own training, I guess, I don't know what I was expecting you to say, but uh, I would have assumed that you run more than you do. Mm -hmm. And so I think like what you just said about the kind of quality workouts over quantity, like, I think that's so important.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, it totally is important. And you know, it, it junk hours just like, don't really add up to anything besides making you tired. And I mean, I do, I, I call, I have a hard time saying this, but I do call myself a professional runner, <laughs> which just sounds funny to say, but I have a lot of other things I do in my life. And so if I tried to just run all of these miles, um, I would crumble because like I I still have to work. I still have like emails. I still have stuff I need to get done in my day-to-day life. So I run, but I think I have a good balance with it. And maybe it's because like ultra running is not so numbers driven, but it's like something I truly enjoy. And I look forward to that period of time each day where I get to run. Yeah.
1: Which I mean, keeps you doing it, right? Totally.
0: Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, when we were
1: chatting before recording about things that you wanted to talk about, you said something that I thought was really interesting about how you don't like when people say to you, Oh, you look like a runner or this idea of kind of judging people on, especially women, like on their appearance uh, versus, especially when it comes to
0: sports. So will you talk about that? Yeah. It's, it's just something that I've really been thinking about a lot lately. Um, I work with a lot of people, a lot of women, um, runners and with nutrition, and I just see so much, um, body lack of self-esteem. Um, and it makes me really sad. And I think as a society, we're just so used to looking at people and like really making a judgment about them just based on what they look, what they look like. And I get that so often where people are like, "You look like a runner," and I'm like, "What does that mean? Like, what is that supposed to mean? How can you tell? Um, you know, are you just judging off my body? Am I wearing running clothes?" Like. And it really bothers me. You know, it before you could take it as like a positive thing, like, oh, I look fit. But it just means that someone is really just making these these um, assumptions about me based on who I am, not how my body moves. And I think that's like part of the problem, part of why women struggle with self esteem or, you know, have these um, insecurities because they are being judged from the external the external things like how they look rather than what they accomplish who they are how their mind works what their body can do and when i work with people it you know one of the most rewarding things that i've been able to do is is teach them like with food especially like how to eat to make yourself feel good and how to have a healthy relationship with food not to not how to use food to manipulate how your body looks but let's use food to make your body feel energized so you can do all these things that, you know, are incredible. Yeah. This idea
1: of, you know, you look like a runner or that's what a runner looks like. I mean, it creates such a narrow view of who can be a runner, right? Right. it's basically what they're saying is, oh, you look like what I see on the cover of runner's world or whatever, like, which I mean is fine, right? It's not Mm -hmm. inherently good or bad. I don't think they're saying it to be good or bad, but it's that it creates these
0: perceptions of if I don't look like X, then I can't do this thing, which is so far from the truth. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, there are so many different body types who are successful in running in ultra running specifically. And, um, you know, I think it's important to show different body types, but I also think it's important to like, get away from like, this is a body type. Like, let's talk about what this person does.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, so I'm curious, so much of this is social conditioning, right? Like, especially as a woman, like what have you done to break yourself of the habit of like judging other people or other women on their appearance. I feel like sometimes, unfortunately it's something that happens like so naturally or like the it urge does. to compliment someone on something physical. doesn't mean again, you can't do that, but like, right. what does that look like for you? So,
0: and it just means like, you know, before making a comment or like even in my mind thinking something just, Putting not necessarily putting myself in their shoes, but a little bit just taking myself out of our normal thought process when it you know you see a photo or you work with someone um, but also I think I try to be really authentic with myself and not just put these perfect photos of me like running or like in this beautiful environment um, because I think it makes me more real and um, you know everyone has that kind of story too, and so just having an, a bit of um what's the word, not humility, but just like, um, care for other people. Um, and knowing like their context, I think is, is a good, healthier way to think about it. Yeah. For me, I
1: mean, and obviously we're talking about just like one specific topic, but this could go on to other things. For me, I find it helpful, difficult, but helpful to kind of check my first reaction to things or like the first thing that I would say to someone or like mm-hmm. the lowest common denominator of what I would compliment someone on or just like these kinds of things that that's so much social conditioning. And sometimes that is really the thing that I want to say, but sometimes it's not. And so like just taking like a moment of pause of yeah. interesting, why did my mind go here first? Or like, right. could I dig deeper? Or yeah, that kind of thing. yeah,
0: no, I love that. And you know, one of the the first things like, <laughs> like when I'm talking to someone, I don't ask them like, oh, what's your, you know, tell me about your running. Like ask them about like, how's your day or something about the person, like be interested in them. Like I really hate when I meet someone for the first time and all they want to ask me about is like my running results or like running, not like, you know, something real about me.
1: Yeah, totally. No, I agree. So pivoting, pivoting off of running, then yeah. <laughs>
0: tell me about the day you decided to pursue your PhD. Oh, so I, yeah, I have always saw myself as being a full-time professor, tenure track, doing research in academia. So that was like my, like my track, right? from college on. And so I went straight through undergrad, straight through masters in straight into PhD, like literally have been in school since kindergarten (laughs) and not taken any time off. And so, you know, this was just this goal. And I'm from Minnesota and I don't know if this is a Minnesota Midwest thing, but we just like, don't stop something, right? You, you don't not, you finish your goals. You, that's just like what you do. And so I was going, I started my PhD program at the University of Oregon and I was just really unhappy, um, for a number of reasons It you know, it was a great university, but the program just wasn't maybe the best fit for me, um, at that time in my life. And so I just had this like crazy, like maybe quarter life crisis, Where I was like, I can't do this right now. So I quit school and I moved to Bend and I told my parents and they were kind of like, what are you going to do now? And it was like the first time in my life where I hadn't just stuck something out just because I was supposed to, or it was like the track I was on. And, um, it was, incredibly freeing like I moved to Bend and I worked at a coffee shop and it was so refreshing to geek out on like coffee rather than like science um, and I, I just needed like that reset I call it my sabbatical and um, turns out I actually did did want to finish school because I was thinking about it. And I was like, you've put all this time in, like you, you want this. And so I did go back. Um, I transferred to Oregon state and I was really interested in nutrition. And so I just kind of, um, switched gears. I was in human physiology and I switched gears into nutrition and made it, made it a a new goal um, to finish school, get my PhD at Oregon State in nutrition. And, um, you know, when I went back, it was for the right reasons. It wasn't because I felt I had to, it was because I actually wanted to. Yeah, that's the other thing too. Like these one-dimensional stories that we tell of like,
1: quitting isn't an option or yeah. whatever, like it's sometimes you need a break. Sometimes you need to reevaluate and that reevaluation might've led you down a totally different path totally. But you happen to go back. And yeah. i don't know, just I, like, I love when I hear people speak about that kind of truthfully and gracefully mm-hmm. that it's it, sometimes we need to take a break. Yeah.
0: And allow yourself to even contemplate those options because sometimes you don't, you don't need to change paths, but sometimes if you allow yourself to think about it, it really makes sense. Um, Kind of a similar story I have with um, starting my, I started my own coaching and nutrition business and I was teaching full-time at COCC, the community college, and I went backpacking um, out in Eastern Oregon with my husband. We went to Eagle Cap, which is amazing, Uh, but we were just walking and I think best when I'm moving. And I was just like, you know, I love teaching, but I really love working with people one-on-one. I can make such a difference. And I felt there was really a niche for nutrition, um, especially from a sports perspective, because there's really no one out there that's doing a good job with it right now. So I was just like, Zach, I think I'm going to quit my job and uh, start a business. And he was kind of like, "Um, okay. And literally I just did it. I mean, it was scary. I had this great job with benefits and I start from scratch. Um, but sometimes big risk like that can yield big reward.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. So, okay. So talking about the nutrition side of things Mm -hmm. of everything
0: that you learned in school, what surprised you the most? (sighs) Nutrition is so simple. Like we always want to look for like that, you know, I just need to eat this, not that, or, you know, we can make it really complicated trying to count calories or grams. It's so simple just eat real food. Like, you know, it's, it's not, it's hard as part of a lifestyle to eat in moderation and to just focus on real quality food, but there is no magic way to, you know, trick yourself through it. It's, it's really simple and it hasn't changed, um, what we know about nutrition for, you know, many years. Yeah. I, I mean,
1: I think there's part of, Okay. I'll just speak for myself. Part of what's frustrating is how much like seemingly conflicting information there is out there about nutrition. Mm -hmm. But even when you start to dig into it, it's like, okay, well, who's behind that? Like, is there, you know, is Coca-Cola funding this study or is this that like, what's Mm -hmm. the, What's trying to be sold to you, right? Like that you don't see commercials for cucumbers, right? Because no one, like that's not a corporate right. situation. Like the things that get the most kind of hype or marketing or like things around them, someone's like, there's always money to follow, which, yep. you know,
0: that I, so I, I like to hear you say that. Yeah, like it's there's, simple. There's so much misinformation out there, and that's, a lot of what I do um with nutrition is debunk myths for people. Okay. And let's do that yeah. also. Yeah. yeah. So and just teach them like, I mean, you know, you don't like real food is important and like ignore all of that, you know, media stuff because oftentimes like scientific studies are taken out of context. And it's like, you know, they'll say like this nutrient causes this. And then if I go back and look at the study, it's in like, you know, a like a mouse model or something it's like not a real thing so oftentimes it's not even true so I think the most important thing for people to do when they're trying to figure things out is ask themselves does this make sense and most of the time it's it doesn't make sense and you know just, kind of ignoring a lot of those buzzwords and just like sticking to their gut, like literally, (laughs) like eat real food. If you can just recognize the foods that you eat as they grow to the ground, you're going to do a good job. Mm -hmm. Like, you you know, you don't need to worry about it as much. Yeah.
1: So what... uh, from the clients and the people that you work with, what do you think are some of the most common myths or misconceptions?
0: Um, right now, I mean, we're kind of, I think the gluten-free is starting to dissipate a little bit, but that's one that everyone thinks like it's healthier. Um, and it's not necessarily healthier. For some bodies, it is. If you're celiac, truly, you need to avoid gluten. But um, the idea behind that is like, you know, I'm, I actually, I'm good with that when people focus on other sources of food. So if you're avoiding gluten, but you're eating like more real food, that's awesome. That's healthy. But when you're replacing gluten-free or gluten with gluten-free products, that's not really any healthier for most, for the most part, like, you know, bread, for example, like I'd rather have someone eat like homemade sourdough bread than buy like, you know, this really processed, um, Thing with um, like 10 ingredients or more. So that's kind of a big one. Um, and then also just like, you know, looking at the timing of things and like, you know, how much protein do I need versus how many carbohydrates? And um, one that's really unfortunate is that um, carbohydrates are getting a bad rap. And for an athlete, you need carbohydrates. That is the basis of your, your energy. And it helps you recover. And your brain alone needs 130 grams a day of carbohydrate. So really low carbohydrate diet is not necessarily a healthy thing or a way to optimize your nutrition for performance. So um, I think, again, there's misinformation because you don't want like to emphasize pasta, bread, potatoes as your carbohydrate. You want fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Um, so that's one thing that I really find myself talking about a lot. And I try to teach people why, not just I do this because I say so, but do this because this is what's happening in your body. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that brings up another question that I had about like Stephanie, the coach, what do you think makes you an effective coach, nutritionist, that kind of thing?
0: Um, I think, I mean, one, I, like I've gone to school for like a hundred years, <laughs> so I've, I've learned a lot. Um, two, I've had experience, like I literally do these things in my life. Um, and you know, I've had like the, the book side and then the application side. Um, and then also the communication. I, you know, I think I, I like to learn about people and I realize everyone is so different. There's not a cookie cutter plan that works for anyone. So having that knowledge, and that goes back to maybe some of the schooling, like knowing a diverse, um, physiology of someone and metabolism metabolism has really helped me to like figure out different people. And I love the challenge when someone presents me with like, I've got this and this and this, can you help me figure it out? And I, I love that. Um, but I think like the communication piece is key. So for you personally, um, based on
1: everything that you were learning going, you know, through school for a million years, (laughs) what changes did you make
0: to your own diet or lifestyle based on what you learned? Um, the biggest changes I made to my diet were actually with fueling during racing. Um, Mm -hmm. I always was really into food and cooking. So I ate a lot of, um, of real food for the most part, but, um, the fueling piece I just had no clue about until I really learned about it. Um, so that was a big difference, I guess for me. So in, Well, let's say you were mentioning your
1: weekend runs, right? Are Mm -hmm. like up to five hours or whatever. Tell me. So basically, like from when you wake up, like what do you eat before? What do you eat during? What do you eat after?
0: Yeah. Um, So long run, a lot of them I try to use as a dress rehearsal for a race. Um, So you're going to laugh. My favorite pre race food is an ocean roll, which for those of you who don't know what an ocean roll is, it's like a croissant with deliciousness, Um, like cardamom and I don't know, lots of butter in it. It's it's a dense pastry, but it's like croissant dough, so it's like light and fluffy. Um, that's my pre race, and the reason for that is, I mean, it's it's carbohydrate that is um, fairly easy to quick to get into your body, and a little bit of fat, um, maybe a little bit of protein, not much, but. And I can get it down at like 3 or 4 in the morning. Like oatmeal at 3 in the morning is just not happening. Um, So that's kind of my favorite (laughs) pre-race meal. Um, Along with a banana and like 5 spoonfuls of peanut butter probably. So I'll do a little version of that before a long run. Um, normally I I do make oatmeal and um, I always make oatmeal with chia seeds and yogurt, full fat yogurt. Um, I mix that all together and then I'll do like half of an ocean roll and coffee, of course. Um, and that's kind of my pre long run um, meal. And I'll bring the, the half an ocean roll I didn't eat for after. <laughs> so that you eat that how far before running? Um, Normally, as close to when I run as possible. Um, I think it's good for me to practice like eating and running because that's an important part of my racing. Um, but like from a science standpoint, anytime between one to three hours before a run is ideal. Like there's no difference in um, performance. I just think if you eat like two or three hours before, you're gonna get hungry. So, I try to do it as close as possible,
1: okay and then you start the run, and what are you eating on a long run or during a race
0: yeah so during a during a race um, i 'm going to be doing mostly gels and blocks um, fifty miles and down hundred mile is a little different, um, and I start right away in the first hour, and that 's where That's where I made a big difference because you don't feel like you need it. You feel like, oh, I just ate breakfast. But what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for later to not bonk. And there's like, I could get really geeky, sciencey, but um, I'll just say that you use um, the different stores of energy in your body differently when you fuel right away for a positive way. Uh, I guess a positive um performance. Will you go into detail about that more? I'm sure. Curious. Um so um we use glucose and fat, um, carbohydrate and fat um, as fuels. And the the amounts of each depend on the intensity. So at a like maximal exertion we're using all carbohydrate. Um at a you know slow, um, easy jog, we're probably using like 60% fat, 40% carbohydrate. And so there's anywhere along that spectrum, you know, the the faster, harder you go, you're going to be preferentially using more carbohydrate, but you're always using some of both. That's important. Um, so when you fuel right away, well, I guess I should go back. So glucose comes from two different places. One from the stores in our muscles, uh, muscle glycogen, and then two from the glucose in our bloodstream. And so we start to use the glycogen in our muscles first. And um, after about 90 minutes, it is depleted. So we don't have as much store of of um, glucose in our bodies as we do if, as fat. So that's why, you know, we like to use some fat too. But so our glycogen starts to deplete and then when it gets to a low um, low level in our muscles, we start to use the glucose from our, um, our blood supply, so blood glucose. And what happens is the body likes to maintain the glucose in a narrow range. It's a physiological um, number that's really important to sustain for life. So when it starts to decline... It sends a message to your brain to to fatigue um, because it that's like a an alarm almost. Like, okay, blood glucose is going down, we need to shut it down. And so what happens then if you start fueling at that point, because you're starting to bonk, right? You feel that, you're hitting the wall. If you fuel at that point, the the glucose that you take in will go to your working muscles. It'll give them energy. But your blood glucose, it's a different form. It's D-glucose. That glucose that you take in cannot go into your bloodstream to raise blood glucose. So it's like you still can't get to that same level. Your, your body's still fatigued. Um, so if you start taking glucose early, you prevent that drop in blood glucose because you have you have fuel available as your muscle glycogen depletes. It's basically... It,
1: like not letting yourself get to the point that there's a problem because right. then it's too hard to play catch up. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's what well, I would assume. I mean, so, I mean, again, I've never done anything longer than a marathon, but I have a really, really sensitive stomach. Like mm-hmm. I can basically eat like a banana beforehand or I, mean, yeah. I guess I haven't really trained myself to eat too much before or mm-hmm. during runs, but I would imagine that if you train yourself to start eating right away like that takes there's some adaptation there but then you're yep. then
0: better able to take in calories later i would assume yes it's totally trainable um like from just a mental standpoint of getting your body used to it but also a physiological standpoint of like getting the receptors in your stomach used to and upregulated so that they can process carbohydrate. Super interesting. Yeah. I, I love
1: geeky food. I know stuff. We could fun. talk
0: about this for like two hours. <laughs> right. Sorry. We'll have to have you come back and teach yeah. us like how to food another time. Um, so
1: I want to talk, the last thing I really want to talk about is, um, you, I know you mentioned that 2016 was a really tough year for you. Mm-hmm. I assume injury was a big part of that, but will yeah. you just share kind of some of the details
0: of why it was so hard? Yeah, man. So I, I look back at 2016 and, um, It actually ended on a really positive note, but it was, I see, I I see things in color. So when I think about like January, February, it's black and gray. Um, and it fades out, but it was just a really, tough time for me to like figure life out. Um, I had surgery on my Achilles in December of 2015, um, like right around Christmas and, um, with really high hopes of putting this injury behind me and racing Western States in June. And, um, I'd never had surgery before or like anything more invasive than a cavity. I had my first cavity, like a month before then. That was like the most invasive thing I've ever had in my life. So, I don't really had I didn't have context for like what it meant to like have something like that done to my body. And so in my mind, I was going to get surgery and then, you know, wait for the the scar to heal or like the stitches to come out and then I'd feel good, right? Like the thing is gone, I should feel good. But um I didn't realize that there's all the time to recover from like having the bone in your foot shaved off and like having a tendon cut and having a bursa taken out. So it was like really much slower than I had anticipated and much more painful. Um, I was kind of blown away by that. And so instead of me being like physical in those first few months, I was really like left to nothing. Like I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't walk. And everything that I knew about my body and how I processed my thoughts even, um, was suddenly like taken away from me. Like I didn't know what to do with myself. And, um, I became a really anxious person. Just like, I don't know, like I I've always been fairly optimistic, um, you know, or like happy in general. And I just felt like heavy and dark mm. and it was really hard for me. I, you know, it, like you know it wasn't that big a deal i'm like poor me right i can't i can't run but i can do all these other things like i'm not you know living in a in a shack homeless like I, I have all these great things but i wasn't able to appreciate them so i had to figure that out because i you know it took a long time to recover and as i started to get my body back um i started to feel better but then it was like you know i started to come into the light and then was um back down to rock bottom because I wanted to run western states so I cross trained hard like I you know I made myself go to the gym and row every day like I worked really really hard to meet this goal and then I started running in May or April and um it turns out I just ramped up too quick and I got a stress fracture so like everything that I had been working towards like physically mentally it was just suddenly pulled out from under me it felt and I was back to like wow, like rock bottom. And I hit that point and I was like, I cannot mentally go through what I just went through last spring. Like it was really hard on me. And so I, I decided I needed to figure out how to get happy without trying to cross train or without having those things that were normally like kind of bring me up in my life. Um, so I just let it go. Like, honestly, like I just let everything go like with trying to stay fit, with trying to like, you know, my identity sometimes feels wrapped up and running. I just let go of all of that and um, just started to focus on what little things make you happy. And it was slow, but I really kind of built that up. And each day I was like, okay, what can you do to like make yourself feel alive today um, that isn't physical yeah. And I finally found myself like in August. It took all the way to August, but I wasn't doing much, but I was so happy. Like I, at that point, I could walk. So I would go camping. I, I had many weekends where I went camping with my dog, just the two of us around Pacific Northwest. We just like, you know, we just explore and just like get lost. And, um, I don't know. It was a slower pace of life, but I was really happy. And I'm so fortunate to have had this injury because now, I know this about myself and I'm okay with like less. Yeah. I think there's
1: something really powerful about having to confront the like activity or the thing that your identity is wrapped up in, Mm -hmm. like whether it's a job, a status symbol, a relationship, a thing. like, uh, I mean, I think we all kind of do that, whether it's one thing or more than one thing. And then when something changes or shifts and that's not, you know, you're not necessarily just Stephanie, the runner, right? Right. Oh, okay. Going, having to work through that period of feeling really empty, which I think is Mm -hmm. super honest and also really normal. And then to have to be like, okay, wait, I'm more than just this thing that I do.
0: Yeah. And I, it's really hard with our social media presence because people think they know us. Right. And when it's like, you know, I, I try to be authentic in ways that I put out more than just running about me. But when it all comes back to it, people think of me as as a runner. That's like, you know how it works. And so I struggled for a while with that. Like, you know, everyone, I don't have this. So does that mean I'm nothing? But um, I have a really great group of f- friends in Bend and I do have other things that I do in my life. And so I just had to almost put technology away or just make it not such a central part of my life so that I could remember that um, that's not real. This is real.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned the really good group of friends. You mentioned camping. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what some of the other like little things were that you found yeah. brought you happiness and who some of the other people were that were really kind of your support system during this time.
0: Yeah. Um, little things that I just started doing to like figure out like what made me happy were um, painting. I've always done, I'm not very good, but I really like to do it. it. To me, it's like I can get lost in a painting like I can get lost in a run. It's not quite to the same like, feel good extent but it really got me focused on something else so that was something that i did um also baking and cooking which sounds like i don't know like to me it's an art um it's yeah i mean you know (laughs) um and it was really something that i enjoyed doing in a way it's physical because you're using your body to create something just in a different sense so i did a lot of that um I drank wine and I don't mean like I drowned myself in wine, but I went out to like a, you know, a nice wine bar with a friend. We dressed up and like, it was really fun to like put on like a dress and like go have wine and talk with a girlfriend. Um, so I did that a little bit more, uh, because I was home. I also traveled and saw some friends. Like I have a friend from high school, um, who lives in Denver and she has two kids. Um, one is a two-year-old and the other is, she was like three months at the time. And um, her husband was out of town. So I I went to visit her and spend a weekend with her and the kids. And that's not something that I would normally do because I don't really have that time. But um, it was really great to be able to reconnect and like see how crazy busy it is when you have two little kids. Man, if I wasn't there, she wouldn't have been able to take a shower. So um, I did that. I visited my parents. We went to the Boundary Waters and we went canoeing and just the three of us. It was so great. Yeah, no, I mean, I love that. I feel like uh, so many of the things that are
1: cliches, like our cliches on the surface, but are actually like yeah. there's truth behind them. Like yeah. we hear about the like finding joy in the little things or know. Like, looking at bad things as like an opportunity. Like doesn't mean that you also probably like didn't throw yourself pity parties and like weren't upset. Like, of course you were, but yeah. being able to look at something as, okay, if I'm, if I could just for a second, choose to look at this as an opportunity, what else could I create? Right? Like painting, right. baking, like running a rate like they're all they're all sort of creative in a different way so being Mm -hmm. able to say okay maybe i can't walk around but i can sit here and paint this thing and that's still creating or you know oh i have more flexibility in my schedule who can i go visit that i did like there's i don't know like even that i feel like Mm -hmm. it's an empowering way to look at setbacks it is yeah and like make yourself happy Yeah, totally. Um, So that's a good place, I think, to start to wrap up. Um, The way that we end these, as you know, are with what we call community questions. So Mm there are nine kind of rapid, fiery questions that the listeners want me to ask all of our eight guests this season, if you are down to answer some random questions. (laughs) All right. If you could only watch
0: one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh my gosh. I'm so not a TV watcher. Okay. Um, You can say nothing. I eat nothing. (laughs) Uh, You know... I'm kind of into the Netflix, um, original series though. So all of those, I guess are probably something I would watch, but, um, actually I take that back as I'm thinking it through. I like John Oliver.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of Netflix and things that I've been watching on Netflix, um, have you ever seen chef's table?
0: I've seen episodes of it, but I haven't actually watched it consistently. Oh God, there's some ones in the new season that are so good that I think that you would love. It's just yeah. like the most beautiful food. Like just, oh, I'll so have to good. save that for when I'm traveling because that's yeah. when I usually watch Netflix. Totally. Um, okay, so the next question:
1: of everything that you've spent money on in the past few months, what's the one purchase that has made you the happiest, or the thing you're most glad that you spent money on?
0: I spend my money on experiences, and I I love that. Um, so the the thing that I just recently spent money on, I haven't been on this. Trip yet, but, um, my husband and I bought tickets to Nepal for six weeks, um, in this, this next fall. And I already know that's going to be an amazing experience for me. So it's so funny. I had never
1: really spent much time thinking about Nepal. And mm-hmm. in the last like three weeks, I feel like it's coming at me from everywhere. Like people are going or someone I just started following on social media was just there or this person, you know, did the Everest base
0: camp. I don't yeah. know what the universe is telling me about Nepal, but what are you guys going to do there? Oh my gosh. Um, just like it, to me, so when I was injured, I watched um, more TV than normal and um, I really like documentaries. And so I watched a lot of like mountaineering disaster movies. And I know that sounds really bad, but it just like, to me, it was like so inspiring almost. And I was like, okay, don't get too into mountaineering because this is not a sport you're going to take up. But um, just, you know, I I watched a lot of the Everest um, documentaries and I just, I mean, for that's one reason, but um, I just want to be in that Environment and experience it. Oh my
1: gosh, I can't wait! Please take I I can't wait. I well, know. we're going
0: in the fall. If you find yourself with some free time, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, what's something that only those in your close inner circle know about you, or that people who only know you through social media would be surprised to learn?
0: Hmm. So, I, I'm kind of an open book, so that's a little bit tough. Um, maybe that I'm not like. I'm not super serious and um like regimented about running and training and results. Like, I mean, if you were to like be a fly on the wall in my day, I don't talk about it really at all. Um, I mean, I run and like, but I run with my dog, and it's not like to me, it feels like training. Like I think people sometimes get a sense that I'm really like, Type A with that, which is funny because I'm a type A personality, but i'm I'm really not that way about like running. Like I kind of am turned off when it starts to become like too big of a deal or people just talk about it all the time, yeah. No, I, I mean, I agree. I think that's something that
1: as an outsider, and it's not about you specifically, but I think people would think, oh, someone that's been this successful or that this is a part of their kind of job, livelihood, whatever, big passion would be like really obsessive about yeah. it. And through, I mean, throughout this whole conversation, I think it's really clear that you're not. No. Yeah. And I think that's important for longevity. Yeah. No, I think so too. <laughs> I mean, that you don't burn out. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, what's something that you're not doing because you're afraid? <sighs> Mountain biking, technical trails. I love everything outdoors and I love mountain biking, but I'm afraid of crashing. And that's um, fair. It it is, but I know, I know I can do it. Um, And I'm almost afraid of like to, I'm afraid to do it because of the stress that I might fall and like hurt myself. So um, yeah, I, I think like it's a really cool thing that I want to get better at, but I am afraid of. I don't know. Rocks. Lava rock. <laughs> <laughs> what's the one song that you always turn up and sing along with when you hear oh, it? 80s, 80s music. Um, Madonna or Michael Jackson. Um I like it. I turn up the music when I'm in my car by myself all the time, but like 80s music really gets me. Yeah, I love that. That's your jam. <laughs> um, what's something that you really
1: love about yourself?
0: I love that I'm adaptable. Um, I think I really could be okay in any situation or any place that I lived. I mean, I'll definitely pick living in the mountains, but I think if I were living in New York city, I could be happy. So I think I am able to find the, the things that make me happy, or you know, are important to me in my life. Um, given any situation.
1: Mm, that's a good answer. <laughs>
0: um, how do you typically spend the first hour of your day? What does that look like for you? <laughs> Head down? No, just kidding. Um, drinking coffee. Well, I wake up like you know, stumble into the kitchen, make some coffee, open my computer um, to read the news. I, I grew up reading the newspaper, so I really like to to start with that. Um, so I'll read the New York Times and then start to answer emails. And then after about an hour, I'm ready to like show my face in public. <laughs> right. This is your don't this, talk to me. This my is time. my <laughs> hatching time, yeah,
1: and you're allowed to do that also. So that's fine. Um, okay. So the next question is about books, which book or two or three books of any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you reread or recommend the most?
0: Man, I, I mean, I love books that are, um, real life stories. So anything John Krakauer, I, I mean, I just, I've read those books over and over again. Um, Probably my favorite book that I can remember growing up that I still have is Where the Red Fern Grows. And I don't know what about that. I mean, I didn't have animals growing up. I have a dog now. But um, like I cried the first time I read that. And I was like 10. And my mom bought me that book because she saw how much I loved it. And I still have the book that she bought me. And she wrote in the cover, like, Stephanie, good books are meant to be read more than once. Hmm. Love, mom.
1: Wow, that's so sweet. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, So the last question, if you could leave our community,
1: the listeners with one call to action right now, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take in the next week or month or Mm. whatever?
0: I think, you know... One thing that's really important to me right now is really thinking about like how we how we treat each other like thinking about love and um interactions with other people and the earth. I think that's all inter like, you know, interwrapped up. And so everything that you do or say or act should be done with um I guess love behind it. You know, it's not necessarily like I don't know, like doing things to benefit those around us, um, and the earth, because I think that's ultimately the most important thing, like humankind and the place that we live. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's beautiful. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi. And maybe as far as social media goes, do you have a favorite way to connect?
0: Um, Probably Instagram is my favorite. I love photos. Too. And yeah. it's so happy. So Stephanie Marie Howe on Instagram. Um, my website is stephaniehowviolet.com. And I have just a bunch of stuff on there right now. Um, I have a link to my email. I also have a new recipe for Lucky Charms ice cream that <laughs> I've amazing. just posted.
1: So if, if anyone who's listening is potentially interested in coaching or the nutrition stuff, is your website the best place to go? Yep,
0: yep. they can check out all the options there and email me. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks
1: so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. So if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every single month, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better behind the scenes in our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.